Welcome to Elmo's World Podcast. This is Elmo Odor Jr. Uh, thank you so much, uh, J- Jonathan Baker, for being here with uh, with, with us today. Uh, can you introduce yourself? Uh, yeah, you can call me John. I'm currently a postdoctoral researcher in China. I uh, received my PhD in geology with a focus on uh, paleoclimate reconstruction. So I'm most interested in studying how climates have changed over the past, uh, especially in northern Eurasia. So that's uh, most of my work is in Russia. Cool. So um, when you talk about like um, paleoclimatology, right, it's more focused on studying the signs of how climate is, what and what affects it the global impact we have over it correct and i mean our focus is to study how climate first of all document how climate has changed in the past and we could do that on a local scale like if we just want to go to a specific part of the world and we want to know you know 5000 years ago how different it was and how it's changed over time maybe there are specific patterns to that change uh most importantly we want to understand why uh climate has changed and and what the influencing factors were Uh, its relevance to the modern situation is if we can understand how it changes naturally, then we can delineate, uh, you know, human influences today, and, and we can use this understanding to project into the future, uh, you know, what's what's in store for us and how that may impact uh, ecologies and societies and so forth. What are usually the enemies of your science? Like, uh, is it more on those who don't believe in climate change? The the corrupt oil companies <laughs> and um what what like what what kind, what uh, what sort of people uh wish to obstruct uh the goals of your your studies that's uh that's quite the loaded question <laughs> so let me break it down a little bit um i mean first of all when it comes to paleoclimate the, the interest in this has i mean it dates back to at, at least to the 1800s i mean arguably arguably before that but in terms of a rigorous science it goes back to the 1800s especially an interest in uh identifying this past ice age or this hypothetical ice age that louis agassi and several others I mean, found evidence of they found evidence that uh, there was ice forming in the alps that's no longer there uh in other parts of europe And eventually, that turned into uh, you know recognizing that you know at some point in Earth history, the, the overall weather and climate was very different from what we experience today, and there there must be you know some mechanism behind that. Uh, it, it took a lot of work, but eventually we identified some of the main mechanisms, uh, especially studying atmospheric chemistry and you know incoming radiation from the sun and outgoing radiation into space. Uh, you know, looking at the physics behind this, and then finally getting into the geological evidence. In the mid 20th century, you know, it's when we started to dig up evidence, um, you know, through ice cores and drilling down through ocean sediments at a, uh, a much accelerated rate. So we had these huge data sets coming in that showed uh, that climate changed very rhythmically. You know, there was a, a pattern to it, going up and down, up and down, and and we we're able eventually to explain or mostly explain uh, this pattern of ice ages and uh, warm periods in between uh, and, and also go back much farther than that, not just our recent climate change over the past few million years, but you know, going back to the Mesozoic, to the Paleozoic, and uh, to the very beginnings of, of Earth history. Uh, so a lot of this, though, um, a lot of this we learned through oil exploration, at least some of these large data sets. And the reason for that is if you want to find oil, 
you have to be able to identify in the rock record what kind of environments existed there, and you want to be able to predict, you know, where to find similar environments, you know, because you have an environment that uh, would trap organic matter that would turn into hydrocarbons that could be exploited for oil and gas, uh, then you need to understand, like, this, this pattern of environmental change and also climatic change. So uh, it's, it's oil exploration that led to a lot of our initial understandings on, um, uh, you know, a detailed climate change. So I, you, you talked about the, I mean, before we go into uh, <laughs> objecting opinions and things like that, I think it's important to clarify first what we're talking about. Um, I mean, I'm using this term climate change, and, and we, could, we could throw in the term global warming, uh, these are not exactly the same thing, but they, as we use them colloquially and just in common speech, they refer to the same kind of phenomenon. So, so it, if, if I'm using that term global warming or climate change generally, it refers to this abrupt increase in surface temperatures, uh, especially since the 1950s to the modern day. Uh, and, and that's the, the abrupt increase in temperatures that's linked specifically to human activities. So of course we can use climate change as, and global warming as a general term. We could talk about it happening 50 million years ago or a billion years ago. Uh, but when you know when we use uh, those terms without uh, without caveats, then uh, generally that's what it's referring to. It's this very recent trend over the last few decades. Um, but I said these terms are not exactly the same thing. So global warming uh, or global cooling refers to a net persistent change in the planetary heat balance. The planetary heat balance meaning we have radiation coming in from the sun warming the surface of the earth. We have uh, radiation lost to space. Right? And, it, and it works just like a budget. And if you understand a budget, then you can understand the basic physics of this. Heat coming in, heat going out. If those amounts are the same, then there's no change in heat in earth's surface systems over time. But if there's more heat coming in, then it will lead to an increase in heat, right? So when we say global warming, we're specifically learning, we're specifically referring to uh, a long-term change in that heat balance, or, or an, a heat imbalance that leads to a long-term change in the total heat content in Earth's surface systems, right? So the surface systems that uh, includes the atmosphere. But uh, can you give me like in terms of how how you uh, taken the data you've taken about the the current situation we have on climate change or global warming, in terms of like a nuclear doomsday clock, <laughs> like how how long do we how much time do we have on Earth to to like. Uh, Go back and change the course of history, then that we 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 don't we're, that we're not at the point of no return or something. <laughs> I, I, there's no single answer to that, um, it, and it can be quite subjective, and uh, depending on where you live and what your local vulnerabilities are. I mean, for for some communities today, like that uh, that time has already passed, and that threat is already there. Uh, others are much more buffered from the impacts, and humans as a species are much more buffered from the impacts than many other species, right? We're a lot more adaptable than something like coral that's just stuck there uh, in the ocean, right? And <laughs> it is much more vulnerable to shifts in temperature and ocean pH and things like that. Uh, so I, I hesitate to put any single number, and you, you should be... If anybody does give you a simple number like that, you should... Uh, first, try and figure out exactly what they mean. Um, usually, 
if, if we talk about having so many years to reverse the course or mitigate uh, climate change, then uh, usually it's referring to a point at which it's going to be much more difficult or at, at which humans can no longer feasibly impact uh, the course of climatic change um, due to feedbacks in the system. And feedbacks would be like, well, if, if it gets to the point where um, you know the, the polar ice caps start melting at a certain rate, then it doesn't really matter if we cut off you know, cut off every power plant, every car, and, and every other source of uh, greenhouse gas emissions. Like, at, at that point, the feedbacks from the melting will cause it to continue to warm regardless of what we do. So that's the biggest concern, and, and like I said, there's no single number that anyone can place on that. Uh, we can certainly put estimates and make projections, and, and it's important to distinguish between projections and predictions. It's, and, and I think these terms are thrown around a little bit too loosely. I mean, making a prediction uh, is, is more like, you know, predicting who's going to win some championship game or, you know, the, the, the World Cup or something like that. <laughs> and, um, but it's a, it, a projection uh, assumes certain behaviors and, and certain behaviors of physical variables and human behaviors along the path. You know, so we can project, like, if, if we do X, then uh, change in the future would be, you know, it, it would be this plus or minus this. Uh, and, and so it assumes that uh, certain things will happen. Uh, and and uh, that, that's why there's a range of uncertainty and so forth. So to give you an idea, like uh, we can project, for example, it's, it, you know, that it's going to, that surface temperatures will increase by another one degree Celsius over so many years. Um, but that projection will have certain assumptions built into it. For example, what our greenhouse gas input outputs will be. It assumes uh, that we can constrain like uh, outputs, outputs from solar activity uh, or feedbacks from ice and, and things like that. So projections always come with uncertainties and that's why there is no specific number. Um, nonetheless, I mean, it, it's evidence that, uh, I mean, already we've gotten to a certain point where there's enough heat, excess heat locked into the system, especially into the oceans, uh, that it's becoming less and less feasible to uh, mitigate impacts to a certain point. Um, I, I mean, there is no real doomsday scenario here where everything and everyone on the planet is dead and can't survive, but, um, you know, so this, that's why I avoid... I avoid conversations that use this very subjective language, you know, like end of the world. I mean, that's a that's a very subjective term. I mean, end of the world means different things to everyone, <laughs> so it's it's not scientifically relevant. Same with the you know something like doomsday or 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 dystopia or anything else. Uh, so I try to, it, it's important to restrict the conversation to very uh, quantitative terms if we can. Uh, and that's the best we can do. I mean, we can project, for example, that uh, Arctic sea ice coverage will be less than 15% by the 2040s, plus or minus a decade or so. It, uh, that, that's a okay. general projection. Yeah, but I guess that I wanted to shape my question on whether or not we should worry about things because, you know, if, if there's st still something we can do about it, about, st uh, about what could happen in the future, and we're you're still we still have the chance, and you know like 
in 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 the media and uh, education th- there's always an emphasis on on how or on on the ma- man's impact on on climate change global warming you know especially so i, I wanted to ask like um should we worry about uh, climate change because a lot of of people like for example i've uh, listened to candace owens talk to joe rogan about this and she said that you know she she's not gonna be worried about climate change because uh in in a way like climate change always happen and it will happen so uh she'd she'd rather not uh uh think about it because you know it's it's inevitable or something but i guess that that's pretty stupid for in well there's opinion. there are a series of logical flaws there but uh, let me highlight again that whether or not we should worry about it again is a subjective term or is it, it's a personal decision um, I want to break I would break it down this way so let's take a step back um, I, I think so climate change is uh, it should not be controversial but understandably it is because the claim is that uh, there's an abrupt increase in surface temperatures an abrupt change in climatic variables uh, that we attribute to human activity over the past hundreds of years actually and if that is the case and if that will lead to detrimental consequences not just for human societies and economies but also for uh, ecologies you know extinction of species and and things like that if that is the case uh, then we're faced with the question whether we ought to do something can we do something and uh, what can we do exactly, right? So we break it down this way. First, there's a scientific question, and and that is a simple observation whether the, whether or not this is happening. And, and this is totally separate from the question of whether we should care or do something about it. I mean, we could come to the conclusion that yes, uh, yes, global warming is happening. It's getting worse, and it's going to have all these negative impacts. But I don't care because I just I just don't care personally. I have no moral investment in that, so I just choose not to worry about it. I mean, somebody could come to that conclusion uh, because, again, these are unrelated, right? So the first is a scientific question. The second is a moral question, right? If that is the case, ought we act, right? Uh, and we could we could establish scientifically that uh, some factory is polluting the farmland around it, right? And that pollution is causing people to get sick and animals to die and things like that. But the moral question is still there, whether we ought to do something about that. I mean, maybe the factory owner decides that he just, if it's not his life at stake, then it's not worth worrying about. And I think that's what a lot of people end up doing. I mean, I used an example that's very, you know, it's a lot more obvious. Uh, but for most people, they, they don't see it as directly relevant to themselves. And they find a way to distance themselves from the moral question, and therefore they don't even consider... Uh, the last section, which is a political question. The political question is, what can we do about it? What's the best way to address this, right? I mean, so we can agree, for example, scientifically that yes, this is happening. We can agree morally that we ought to do something about it, and we can disagree wildly about what to do about it. Uh, and, and that should be the order of reasoning. Like we should go, sci- we should go first from the scientific observations uh, and all of those reports and then move to the moral question and then move to the political question. But I think what happens, especially with somebody like the, the example you mentioned, uh, what, what happens with a lot of people is they look first at the proposed political solutions They say, I don't like that. And one way to avoid that conversation is to pretend that the, uh, that the moral or the scientific questions are flawed. 
right? So they, so they work through it backwards. They say, I don't like what you're telling me I need to do to fix climate change, whatever that means. Uh, so I'm going to go back to being skeptical. It's kind of a defense mechanism, actually. They go, they go to being skeptical about the science itself. Uh, and it's extremely effective, but it... When you talk about the moral decision and be, being skeptical about it, but others, like for example, a lot of religious people who who believe that the earth will eventually be destroyed, like uh, they believe they accept climate change and global warming, and they know it's happening. But they, they because they believe that um, God is going to destroy this old earth and like uh, He's going to make a new earth, and so uh, they just don't care about what what their their effect on this uh, on on the, their global impact on climate change is because. Uh, they see it as part of like this uh, story narrative of apocalypse, but so well. Yeah. I mean, that's just an example of how uh, people can diverge in opinion on the moral question. Uh, and you gave an example of where somebody believes that uh, that there's some external uh, providence over natural world, and and there's some uh, direction in which it's heading. And therefore, you know, we may acknowledge that uh, climate change is happening, but we're not so worried about it because we, because of X, Y, and Z. I mean, somebody can come to the same conclusion from a more nihilist or atheistic perspective, saying, "Well, I, if it's not going to affect me before I die, I just don't care personally." And, and most people uh, within that uh, paradigm do not come to that conclusion, but um, they could try and make their case, right? So. Again, it, I mean, it doesn't necessarily matter where you're coming from. Whatever uh, philosophical or religious paradigm you're in, you, that works as a filter to decide whether I should care about it. So when you're asking me, for example, whether we should worry about climate change, that depends on you and what you worry about and why you worry about it. Uh, I mean, if, if you don't care for the lives of others, then no, you shouldn't worry about climate change, probably. Uh, I mean, but if you care about, if you do care about the lives of others and the well-being of others, and if you care about your your bank accounts, if you care about the taxes you pay, if you care about immigration, if you care about a lot of other things, then you should worry about it because it's going to impact, and it has impacted all of these things, right? I mean, overall, uh, climate-related disasters are a drain on the economy, every economy, uh, to the tune of hundreds of billions of dollars a year uh, in uh, the Western world, at least. Uh, I mean, we see that right now. Uh, we've seen that through this season and, and every almost every season in the last 20 years. Uh, so it is a drain on the economy. It does impact how much of your money, either directly or indirectly, goes to uh, addressing the consequences, right? Uh, it, it also impacts uh, the stability of societies, right? So some societies are more buffered from that. I mean, the middle of the United States uh, is certainly more buffered from the impacts of climate change. Uh, I mean, arguably there are impacts there, but they're going to be more buffered than, say, coastal societies in Southeast Asia, which are more densely populated, they're more susceptible uh, to extreme weather events and, and to sea level rise and things like that. So as these impacts accumulate, though, uh, it destabilizes societies around the world. Not at the same rate, but it destabilizes societies to the point that causes migration, right? And and some, I mean, everyone will have a different opinion on uh, immigration and border political borders and so forth, but the fact is you have to deal with that question uh, more and more as the impacts of climate change accumulate. 
Right? So there are a lot of people, for example, in the United States, uh, I mean, it's, it's a sharply divide, divisive uh, political issue. But for people that are very anti-immigration, they also tend to be ones that don't care about climate change. So when, when, climate related, when climate related disasters destabilize a region that causes mass migration, uh, you know, millions of people or thousands of people looking for another place to live, uh, a place to find refuge for their families, and they try to come here, then these are the same people that say, I don't care about climate change, but I also don't want those people on my doorstep. Let's, let's kick them out. And you can't have it both ways. I mean, you can't not care about climate change and then uh, try to dismiss the direct impacts of it. So uh, th this <laughs> it becomes an unspoken uh, political dilemma here, and you know, again, in many other places. Okay. Okay. So I, I I agree with you that there are different moral paradigms that uh, that is very very subjective to every individual, I guess. But in terms of having different paradigms, I think it's essential to have at least an objective. Uh, scientific uh, understanding of the current state of of the of the of the climate change on Earth and global warming, in order for those with 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 uh, different moral paradigms to make uh, decisions about this or what the actions they should take, right? So in ter for, but for, because you yourself you're a scientist. Um, in 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 your understanding, uh, should uh, uh, it's not that should, but uh, is there a need for us to to do st something about about uh, how we interact with nature and and all that stuff? If you ask me, yes, um, I I think there's no question, uh, and where people are divided on this question, I mean. It, I, I mentioned the importance of those moral paradigms, but usually that's not the point of disagreement. Uh, and again, I, I don't mean to be American-centric here, but uh, just because those are the data I'm familiar with, let me give an example. Uh, at least in the U.S., uh, religious affiliation is not the strongest predictor of whether somebody is skeptical, skeptical of climate change. It's either their political affiliation or their uh, level of scientific comprehension. Right, so those are the two major indicators. Like, if you just picked a person at random and all you knew is their highest level of education and their political affiliation, uh, you can strongly predict what their attitude on climate change will be. Uh, if you, that's that's different from if you just knew, you know, what what their religious affiliation was. Uh, so in the U.S., for example, the the demographic that is most accepting of the scientific view on this uh, is. Hispanic Catholics, and behind them are atheists and Black Protestants. But the demographics that are most skeptical, most skeptical about climate change, are white Catholics and white Protestants. Right. So, so you see it all over the map in terms of uh, religious affiliation, and, and the strongest predictor again is uh, where they tend to align politically. Uh, so it goes back to what I'm saying is that what I said earlier that most people argue this backwards. They look at what people are saying in the media, uh, what politicians are saying about what we ought to do, and then they 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 pick and choose. Well, I you know I don't like that idea. I would prefer this idea, uh, and you know that 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 sort of decides in advance uh, how I should address. Uh, 
or sorry, how I should approach the scientific data, whether I should be accepting it or trusting of scientists or so forth. Uh, so what's happened here, I mean, there, there didn't used to be this sort of political divide. Uh, if you go back, uh, let me think here, if you go back at least 15 years uh, prior to Obama's election, if you took a random selection of Democrats and Republicans, they would have very similar attitudes on global warming. Uh, but since that time, that's it's become very sharply divided. Right, where Republicans are decidedly more skeptical and Democrats are decidedly more accepting of the scientific view. Um, what are the most obvious data to show um, what the the need is scientifically rather than morally? Uh, good question. Uh, where to start? Uh, I, so, so first of all. I mean, I mentioned earlier, I wanted to distinguish between global warming and climate change briefly. Uh, one of the silliest and, and most persistent skew ideas that I've uh, heard and keep hearing is that these uh, terms are kind of thrown around depending on, uh, you know, which one sounds more acceptable to people. And there's this idea that one, that, uh, that scientists use the term global warming until they thought it was not persuasive and then they switched to climate change and so forth. Um, the reason I wanted to define that clearly is, is to, to show what they refer to both. Um, in fact, even going back to the 1950s, uh, there are papers that describe, you know, the, the phenomenon of climate change and theories of climate change. Uh, the idea that uh, one term was switched to the other is just patently absurd. So when we, when we talk about global warming again, uh, we're referring to the planetary heat imbalance, uh, but heat is not the same thing as temperature, right? I mean, you can add heat to a glass of ice water without raising the temperature, right? And so the expression of that excess heat could be melting of ice or the evaporation of water, something like that. So air temperature is one variable. And when we talk about climate change, we're, talk we're referring specifically to a persistent change or a shift in the uh, mean or median or statistical distribution of, of climate variables, of which temperature is one. Right. So a change in the 30-year average of surface temperature, a change in the 30-year average of rainfall or snowfall or evaporation, uh, humidity, wind direction, wind uh, speed, air pressure, and things like that. Uh, so I mean, th this is the difference, and that's why we, we can talk about, uh, we can use those terms global warming and climate change to refer to those specific phenomenon. Uh, the, most, I mean, the, the most obvious data set therefore are changes in surface temperature, changes in heat content, and changes in uh, ice volume. Right. So all of these are impacted by global warming, you know, changes in the planetary heat balance. So surface temperature is one uh, since the 1950s, and there's been about a one degree Celsius change in global surface temperature. So that's averaging the entire surface temperature of the Earth, the surface air temperature. Right. And one degree Celsius doesn't seem like a lot. It's not something that you could sense personally. Uh, so I always say put that in context. Uh, travel back in time about 21,000 years ago, right? So 21,000 years ago is the peak of the last ice age. Uh, this is a time when pretty much the entire country of Canada, parts of the northern U.S., uh, the entirety of Scandinavia, parts of Central Europe and northwestern Russia were all covered in a mile-thick sheet of ice, right? So it's a very different world climatically. Sea level was 120 meters lower than it is today. 
but that that huge change between 21,000 years ago and uh, let's go back to the start of the Industrial Revolution, so that's about the year 1850, 1870s. Uh, from 21,000 years ago to the end of the 19th century, there's about a 4 degrees Celsius change in global surface temperature. Right? It took 21,000 years to raise the global temperature by 4 degrees Celsius. And we've observed, that's, we've observed a 1 degree Celsius change since the 1950s to 1970s. Right, so that's in, in the span of 50 to 70 years. Uh, the, the rate of modern warming is substantially greater than is observed through natural climate change, through natural deglaciation or this transition from the ice age uh, to the interglacial. Does that make sense? Like volcanoes because like they blow so much smoke and stuff and a lot of people like argue that um, uh, volcanoes g provide pro uh, give more pollution than uh, a lot of factories or power plants combined. I don't know. Uh, is that true, or is it like? No, I I, I wouldn't. That's not really an argument. Um, it tends to be a diversion tactic. Uh, I mean, you can throw that out there because it's something that may sound plausible if you have no idea what the numbers look like. Uh, but volcanic activity is well monitored. Uh, we know what kind of gas outputs uh, come from global volcanic activity, including at the ocean floor. And and the sum volcanic activity for the whole year amounts to just, uh, so I'm trying to remember here off the top of my head, just a couple days of, of human outputs. Right? So it takes a few days to produce what all the world's volcanoes do in, throughout the entire year. But mo even if that weren't the case, even if that weren't the case, um, the amount of you know, greenhouse gas outputs from volcanic activity doesn't really change from one year to the next. It barely changes from one century or one millennium to the next. Right? So it's fairly constant over time. Whereas, uh, say, greenhouse gas outputs from factories and automobiles and, and agriculture and things like this, they certainly changed uh, substantially over the last century. Uh, and it's nowhere close you know, a thousand years ago compared to today. Right, so this is something that does change on very short time scales, right? whereas volcanic activity is, is very stable. Uh, same with uh, solar outputs. I mean, sorry, solar, sorry, solar output, energy coming from the sun uh, to the earth does change over time, but it's very, very small changes and, and quite negligible on uh, surface climates. And, and this was a surprise. I mean, for, for a long time, we thought this would be the main... Uh, one of the main drivers, and uh, it, for a long time it was argued that this was the main driver of what's referred to as the Little Ice Age, you know, a period from the 1400s to the 1800s that uh, was relatively cold in most places, especially Europe. But uh, the more and more we research that, the more we find that this uh, Little Ice Age anomaly is not, it doesn't occur at the same time everywhere on Earth. It's not always a uh, cooling trend, and sometimes it's expressed just by changes in precipitation, rainfall patterns, uh, and therefore uh, we find that solar variability is not a very strong uh, driver of the Little Ice Age even, which was kind of a classic example of how changes in the sun could uh, affect surface climate. So solar variability on short time scales, uh, even on longer time scales, doesn't uh, have nearly the same potential impact as, uh, as the short-term changes in um, the atmospheric composition. Right, so as we study natural climate change, especially the timeline that I 
have focused most of my work on is the last 12,000 years. Uh, and if we're looking at the last 12,000 years, there are episodes of abrupt climate change for sure, uh, where there's a sudden shift in temperatures in one part of the world or the other. The, the net global change doesn't, it, it usually isn't that substantial. But most of these climatic changes are related to uh, shifts in like ocean circulation or extreme melting of glaciers uh, that should that also impacts ocean circulation uh, because you know the the atmospheric circulation ocean circulation uh, this modulates how heat is moved around the planet right it uh, has less of an impact on the total heat budget for the planet but it does impact how it's moved around the planet so most people are familiar with uh, like the El Nino phenomenon the El Nino Nia cycle. Uh, and if you're on, you know, if you're in the Western Pacific, which you are, right, uh, or in the Eastern Pacific, you're especially familiar with this because it could make some years, you know, miserably hot or, or miserably dry or, or the opposite, right? Uh, so this phenomenon, it just shift, it shifts heat around the globe, and specifically, it moves heat from the oceans to the atmosphere and from the atmosphere back to the oceans. Uh, so, so things like this, if you're only studying one region. Uh, it can appear like it can appear like uh, there are big climatic changes if you, if you if you focused on one location, but when you put the whole portrait together, uh, things tend to balance out more and are more strongly influenced by uh, how heat has moved around the planet. Uh, so it's it's been a you know it's it's been a uh, a widely researched field, you know, trying to extend this global temperature record back as far as we can. Um, but the more data that we have, uh, the more we look at it, uh, the more obvious it is that the modern climate scenario is is very anomalous. It certainly uh, it it doesn't fit in with. I mean, you you can't look back and and find appropriate analogies, um, both because of the abrupt shift in temperatures, not just you know, at any one part of the Earth, but uh, looking at the entire globe. Uh, also, the abrupt change in uh, ice volume. I mean, we see losses in polar ice sheets, and we see sea level change happening at rates that are not normal outside of a deglacial period. A deglacial period is when you're transitioning from a full ice age to the interglacial warm period that we experience, you know, that human civilization grew up in. Uh, so, you know, but the thing is, we're not in a deglacial period right now, and that happened a long time ago. It's it's been over for at least six thousand years. Uh, so the fact that we are seeing you know ice loss and sea level rise at the rates uh, that normally would be observed only during deglaciation, uh, that alone should tell us that this is highly anomalous and and something that if we can act on, then we ought to act on if there are negative consequences, right? Uh, I mean, this is what's most worrisome from a scientific perspective that, this, that the modern scenario is highly anomalous. So going back to your, uh, I mean you mentioned uh, this, this uh, Candace Owen going on Joe Rogan and saying that oh, it's just it's always changed before, it's inevitable. I mean this is extremely naive, uh, this, this position, uh, because ostensibly it's true, yeah, climate always changes, there are natural drivers of climate change that cause it to go up and down in every which way. Uh, but that's, uh, that doesn't mean we don't know why and how it changed in the past and that we can't compare the modern scenario with uh, past scenarios. I mean, that's what we do in paleoclimatology all the time. Uh, and the fact that we do understand relatively well how climate has changed um, over the last few thousands of years, even the last few millions of years, 
uh, it's, it's, that is the foundation for understanding uh, how extreme the modern scenario is. We understand how extreme it is, we understand the main drivers of modern climate change, and that we actually do have a very big influence on that. Uh, so it's, it's a very naive position, uh, and it's, it's extremely irresponsible at the same time, especially for anyone with an interest in politics. Uh, I mean, because these, again, these do have negative impact, uh, impacts on society and on the economy. I mean, if all you care about is money, uh, for example, that, that would be one strong uh, deciding factor in, in taking this seriously. Um, because it does result in, in major economic losses, even in highly buffered developed countries like the U.S., right? And uh, more so if you have less stable economies, uh, which we've seen in other parts of the world where, where things just I mean, they went to hell really quickly. Uh, and, and climate change was the, uh, you know, it, it tended to be that catalyst that drove existing instabilities. Uh, so it's very scary when you look at uh, these examples. And, and I mean that, that that alone should cause us to act, um, but we can go beyond that too, and not just you know our financial well-being, but in terms of you know health, of you know health and welfare of uh, human individuals, and you know also uh, the rest of the natural mm -hmm. world. Yeah, and I wanted to ask you uh, uh, about like you know it, it's proven that. Mankind is the the one that's uh, causing all this change and uh, the rise in temperature, you know. But but I guess that we there that you could scientifically say which industry causes the most uh, influence in in global warming. I guess so. It pro would probably be oil companies, right? Um, I, I mean, I wouldn't pin it directly on the oil companies. Um, I mean, we can certainly have the discussion that I'm not an expert in, but <laughs> certainly could have the discussion on to what extent uh, oil companies knew what the main drivers of modern warming were and, you know, to what extent they funded misinformation campaigns. Uh, and that's all there, and it's, and it's worth looking into. Uh, but at the same time, like, the oil companies survive because we, the consumers, keep it in demand, right? So... I mean, you can't put all the blame on them, you know, when we're the ones creating this demand and we're creating the opportunity for them to make lots of money. Uh, so, I mean, that, that's why the responsibility kind of goes back to everyone and, and personal choices and also, you know, how we're going to act individually, but also how we as a society are going to act and, and shift things. Um, if you're talking about, you know, the major contributors to, say, changes in the atmosphere, then energy production is by far the biggest contribution. Um, and beyond that, it's probably transportation and then agriculture. Right? So if, I mean, if we could change only one thing, the biggest change we could make would be to our energy grids. Right? And again, I, and there's a political and economic question as to how practical that is, how much change we can do, what technologies are feasible and which ones are not. And I'm going to set aside that discussion here and, and just because I'm I'm not the I'm not the expert on technologies and economic uh, solutions and such, but I mean the fact is if there's one change that we can make, then that would be that would have the biggest impact. Uh, I, I was, you know, second to that would be transportation, right? So it's not just planes, trains, and automobiles, but uh, uh, shipping and so forth. I mean, any change that we make. Uh, 
any change to reduce that uh, gets compounded throughout the future. So, I mean, even if if all we could do feasibly right now would be to switch to electric cars or, or something like that, then it would have a major reduction. It doesn't eliminate uh, greenhouse gas outputs from from uh, transportation, but it, it has an impact. And that impact gets compounded throughout the future, just like interest gets compounded throughout the future. Um, uh, beyond that, it's agriculture, and that's you know not just farming vegetables and, and such, but also animal agriculture. Uh, I mean, if you break that down, you know, you find that in terms of animal animal agriculture, that beef is the biggest contributor. After which, you got pork and uh, then a few other meats. So, you know, if there's one change that you can make, then cut out beef, for example. Uh, but but a lot of these, you know, we can you can start to see that. Uh, it, it's a very difficult challenge to overcome because we can't just stop eating. We can't just stop going places. We can't just turn off all the lights and turn off everything that needs energy. Um, so it's, it takes time and no matter what decision we make, no matter what changes we make, there are people that will benefit and there are people that will be highly inconvenienced and some people that will lose everything. Right, uh, and, and that's why I said at the beginning uh, that, that climate change is a, it's not something that should be controversial because scientifically it's quite straightforward. But it is understandably con controversial because any proposed solution is going to, you know, be at at best a minor inconvenience and at worst like the you know responsible for losing uh, everything you worked for. You know, there are some people that stand to lose a lot of money if we make simple changes to the energy grid or transportation and, and so forth. Uh, so it's, I mean, that, that, that's what makes it controversial. That's what makes uh, public opinion become divided because everyone who has a stake in keeping the status quo will ensure uh, that, you know, as many people are on their side as possible. So, I mean, that's that's kind of the origin of these misinformation campaigns. They will, uh, they, they will take the scientific discussion and obfuscate it, make it look like um, make it look like we're all still debating whether or not this is really happening when that's not the case at all. Then, you know, they'll, they'll make statements like, well, climate has always changed and it could be other natural factors when we know that's not relevant or it's not true. Um, so by, by inserting those obfuscations into the public discussion, uh, they can easily divide public opinion and like as I mentioned, uh, in the United States, just as an example, fairly close until after 2007. Uh, and, and then the started to associate believing in global warming and wanting to take action with it on it. Uh, they associated that with the Democratic Party. So if you didn't like Democrats, then you already had motivation to be skeptical of climate change and vice versa. So, so this started to divide, <laughs> divide the political opinions uh, by public difficult to uh, follow the, the the order of reasoning that I mentioned first and go to the political question. Uh, I mean, we we should be going through that all together, uh, and when we get to a point of disagreement, then that's fine. We disagree and we talk about it. Um, but people are approaching it from all different ways, and, and that's that's what's made it near impossible to hold maintain rational discussions on it. Um, and, and the simple reason is that. You know, like I said, any action we take will inconvenience somebody, and and if that somebody has a lot of money, then uh, they're gonna make sure that you are on their side if they can. I've uh, watched a lot of YouTube videos about Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos, and 
<laughs> and all, all this stuff like for example their um their work on on uh, uh renewable energy like, like uh, in terms of solar or the their work on electric uh, the tesla company that and especially on on uh, uh, uh changing all the truck industry into um, more on using electric electricity in order to for uh for fuel you know that that's 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 a huge game changer i guess but it it would have to like uh take a very long time for that to actually be implemented um yeah it can and you know this gets back to the political discussion because we can uh influence those tra transitions to some extent by creating uh, economic incentives, right? I mean, if you offer tax breaks to, to do one thing or uh, something like that. I mean, for example, I, I, mean, I mentioned I'm living in China, and uh, it's not, I mean, people don't own cars to the same extent in China as they do in the U.S. I mean, it would be a mess if they did. Uh, but when they go to buy a new car, uh, if, you, if, you're going, if you're looking in the U.S., electric cars in general have a higher sticker price up front. So you're going to pay more money up front. You're going to pay less money to maintain it, and maybe you'll save money down the road. But the fact that you're paying more up front means they're less accessible to most consumers. Uh, if you go to China, that's not the case. Uh, not only is it cheaper up front to get the electric car, but you get the tax breaks and you don't have restrictions. I mean, normally if you buy a vehicle in China, you're not allowed to drive it at least two days of the week, period. Um, if you have an electric car, you have no restrictions. Right, so there's a huge economic incentive for the average consumer to buy those cars in China, and that's why that transition is happening a lot faster in China than in the U.S. and many other countries. Uh, so we we can add incentives here, but again, like if if we propose that, some people are going to lose money, others will gain money, and maybe a society as a whole is going to gain money. We're going to be better off, uh, both in terms of you know, e economically in terms of pollution and public health and, and I mean there are many reasons uh, from a utilitarian perspective to make this transition as fast as possible but as long as somebody's being inconvenienced and they have any political influence at all they're going to take full advantage and that's kind of what's happening here uh, so yeah so it, it's it's very difficult but it's um you know something that we can try to accelerate if everyone's on the same page uh, I mean, you can't. I I don't think it'll take as long of a time as as uh, many people expect, uh, because you can look historically at how fast prices are falling. Um, I mean, what seems kind of impossible now may not seem that way five years from now. And five years from now, we're going to look back and say, well, that, that really happened fast. I mean, you, you can look at almost any other innovation, like you know, looking at smartphones and just how fast was that uh, we went from them being, you know, the, the rich person's plaything to being absolutely necessary for every teenage kid, you know. <laughs> so, it, you know, I wouldn't call it impossible, and, and uh, but we just have to be wary of um, our collective control over, you know, how fast those changes can happen. Uh, at the same time, it's worth pointing out, though, like, uh, uh, and this, this is... <laughs> This is what causes a lot of confusion in the discussion, too. If you take something like an electric car, uh, it doesn't have zero emissions. I mean, it, it does, while you're driving it, have near, near zero emissions, but it does cost something in terms of carbon emissions to 
construct the car and to mine the uh, basic materials and things like that. Uh, so we are reducing the impacts on the climate by switching to, trend, uh, switching to electric cars, but not eliminating it entirely. So what people have done, and, and especially in these misinformation campaigns, a great example would be a, a PragerU video. Some people will be familiar with that uh, service. And PragerU put out a video uh, arguing that electric cars really aren't greener and they don't really save the environment, they don't save carbon emissions, etc. And it was totally bogus if you pick it apart. If you go back to the sources and look at the papers they try to cite, they and it's quite messy. Um, but regardless, this it's one of the ways in which people divide and help opinions I mean, if they think that the difference that they, they can make personally and uh, it's not going to affect their wallet, then they'll probably make, they're going to be more inclined to make that decision, you know, apart from regardless of politics or anything like that. Uh, but when they don't believe that it makes a big difference, then they don't make these decisions uh, quite as readily. So, so it's been quite a challenge here compared to many other places. And I wanted to ask you one last question, you know, Jonathan. It's, John, it's been a great conversation. And uh, what advice would you give to someone who was interested in their own personal, uh, uh, I guess, uh, footprint, echo footprint, and um, in term and what in order for them to um, look for uh, more reliable information and and to make better decisions. Uh, as far as I mean, personal impacts, personal behaviors. Uh, there are lots of little things that we can do. Uh, I mean, the biggest thing you can do is just reduce your energy impact. And to do that, take a look around the world. I mean, most of the world doesn't use the same amount of energy that the average American does or average European and so forth, and they get along just fine. And it's quite absurd uh, just how much we use. And anything you can do to reduce that uh, personal energy impact uh, will have, I mean, that's one of the biggest changes you could make personally. Uh, dietary changes, of course, have an influence, um, not not as big, but they will have some influence. Can consider our consumer habits, our uh, energy habits, and, and, you know, what I just finished talking about, the transportation habits as well. But, I mean, really, the it's just something that's such a large-scale problem that uh, it will have to involve large-scale action, and that means government action. That's what makes most people feel uncomfortable. Uh, a lot of people, and understandably so, don't trust the government to uh, act responsibly, even if they're doing the right thing. They expect them to do it wrong. Uh, and But we have to face the fact that we have to act collectively, and that means you know changing tax structures, tax structures to provide economic incentives. Uh, it, it, may mean uh, adding regulations to industries, or it may mean uh, calling off resource exp exploration of resources that we can't feasibly use. Like at this point, if we just used up all the oil and gas we've already found, uh, I mean, oh, the, the climatic impact is going to go way beyond our climate targets, right? The warming will far exceed what we think is the <laughs> uh, reasonable cutoff for that. And, you know, so... In addition to trying to change our individual patterns and behaviors, I mean, it's it's worth uh, 
trying to influence how we as a society tackle this question. And that doesn't mean you have to switch political parties. I mean, if your political party leaders are those who say we need to act on climate change right now, then put pressure on them to actually do it, you know. And if your political leaders are ones who say we should ignore it, we just shouldn't care about it, then put pressure on them to, you know, shut up and stop pretending that it isn't real. Because they're smart enough to know that it is an issue. Uh, what they're saying publicly often doesn't reflect their personal opinion on the matter. Uh, so it's it, it can be very frustrating. So, I, I mean, it's, it's important. Uh, if somebody suggests, step back and think, like, what's more likely? Uh, is it that I've stumbled across something that no expert in the world understands or do, right? I mean, so if you have people, you know, spending decades researching this very specific topic, uh, then probably they've thought of those skeptical reports to offer, like, a very obvious refutation of climate science or, or some effort between hundreds of scientists and actually thousands of researchers uh, all put together. That's important because, I mean, if you're only looking at what researchers say in one part of the world, in one country, one demographic, then maybe, you, I mean, they have people from all over around the world, from every country, uh, different economies, different politics, and different uh, religious backgrounds, all saying the same thing. Uh, and you know, contributing to a, a report like this, uh, then you you can trust that most of those biases have been filtered out. In the depending on your background in science, um, uh, the, the main websites I would recommend are Skeptical Science, especially if you're somebody who's uh, if if you're not not a scientist yourself. Um, if you are, and you have a, a these are discussions by the people who who read search this most actively. The panel on climate change reports set by policy more than just, uh, you know, we can set up the discussion and, uh, you know, take the questions and, and, and talk about it. And if you feel like you've stumbled across some obvious refugees, uh, no, at this time, I just encourage uh, encourage people to, you know, step back, especially to, to what I said before, like the keep, your sep keep the questions separate. And there is a scientific question, a moral question, and a political question here and consider how to go through that reasoning um, in the right direction, right? I, and, you know, if people object to the proposed political solution, that's that's fine. That's uh, understandable, and everyone uh, can think differently about that. But uh, it's it's not justifiable reason to be skeptical of, of the science. And uh, within the research community, there isn't, you know, there isn't ongoing debate as to whether climatic change is happening, whether warming whether it's in the direction of warming and whether uh, human activity is the main driver of that, it's like we know, we know it is, and it's it's fairly easy to demonstrate. So, uh, you know, as far as the scientific question, that's uh, much much more established than the public opinion would have you believe. Yeah. Okay. Cool. And bro, I've learned so much from you, and um, I hope that uh, we could continue on with more episodes. Maybe I could like uh, have someone who's who doesn't believe in climate change, talk to you. Yeah, um, <laughs> anytime. So that's the end of it. Thanks for tuning in, guys. This is your host, Elmo Ador Jr. And thank you for listening in. And please subscribe. Please follow us on Facebook. Please, please follow this. Please. Thanks. Thanks.